This is episode 196 of That Shakespeare Life. Bring our show into your classroom with hands-on activities that coordinate with individual episodes and include history guides, tutorials, supply lists, and step-by-step instructions that let you cook, play, and create your way through the life of William Shakespeare. Find out more at castycash.com slash member and stay tuned after the episode for even more details. Hi, I'm Aisha Hussain, a doctoral researcher at University of Salford and events editor at Medieval and Early Modern Orients. Another great method for studying the life of William Shakespeare includes listening to this. It's That Shakespeare Life with my friend Cassidy Cash. I was struck by a phrase and wondered whether it related to a literal act and I found out that I was right and the phrase was the idea um <laughs> I wash my hands of this you know if you've heard that phrase someone says oh I wash my hands of this it's removing yourself from responsibility isn't it because if the hand is a symbol of agency washing it is like you're literally getting rid of something you've done Welcome to That Shakespeare Life with Cassidy Cash. Cassidy believes that if you desire to successfully learn or perform Shakespeare's plays, then understanding the real life and history of William Shakespeare himself is a must. That Shakespeare Life is the podcast that helps you go beyond the curtain of some of Shakespeare's most iconic works and explore the world of early modern England as Shakespeare would have lived it, learning from the writers, historians, and performers who know it best. And now, here's Cassidy. One of the most remembered lines from Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet is when Samson says, I bite my thumb at you, sir. It's funny to us today, partly because we don't understand why someone would bite their thumb. We can tell from context that the line is meant to be an insult, but do you know why it was insulting? Culture of the 16th to 17th century, when Shakespeare wrote lines about biting thumbs or making figs, were similar gestures to giving the finger, or even milder gestures like putting your hand on your hips to indicate impatience. We recognize the cultural gestures of our own lifetime, like hook'em horns or the AOK symbol, but Shakespeare had these same kinds of specific body language communications as well that were just as well known for his audience as a facepalm might be for us today. Shakespeare uses the word gesture at least 10 times in his works with phrases like, quote, there was speech in their dumbness, language in their very gesture, end quote, from A Winter's Tale, or when he writes in the stage directions of The Tempest that Alonzo should use, quote, a frantic gesture, end quote, when he comes on stage. From Samson biting his thumb in Romeo and Juliet to the unwritten motions characters would have used when delivering their lines to indicate sarcasm, grief, insult, or shame, physical motions of the characters on stage were often just as if not more, important to understand than the words themselves. Our guest this week has researched 16th century gestures and body language extensively and written about them in her book titled Shakespeare's Body Language, Shaming Gestures and Gender Politics on the Renaissance Stage. Dr. Miranda Faye Thomas joins us this week to discuss gestures like biting thumbs, but also assumptions we make about praying hands or palm to palm. We're delighted to have her with us this week to explore gestures, symbols, and the culture of unspoken physical performance from Shakespeare's lifetime. 
Dr. Miranda Faye Thomas is Assistant Professor in Theatre and Performance at Trinity College, Dublin. They are the author of Shakespeare's Body Language, Shaming Gestures and Gender Politics on the Renaissance Stage, and editor of The Tempest for Arden Performance Editions. They have also written articles and chapters for the Paul Grape Handbook of Theatre and Migration, Playfulness in Shakespearean Adaptations, How and Why We Teach Shakespeare, the Paul Grape Handbook of Shakespeare's Queens, and Early Modern Literary Studies. Miranda's current research projects include co-editing an essay collection entitled The Idea of the Shakespearean Actor and editing the anonymous play The Taming of a Shrew for the new Oxford Shakespeare alternative versions. Hello, Miranda. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Cassidy. It's nice to be here. When Samson bites his thumb in Romeo and Juliet, is he just being rude or is this gesture akin to throwing down a gauntlet? Meaning, is he trying to start a fight with this gesture? I mean, I guess it's potentially either or both. And what I do really love about this gesture is its performative potential, because it can be done in a lot of different ways. For instance, are, is it going to be performed in a way that's really over the top, or is it going to be done in a more nondescript way in performance? What I really love about this scene and this moment, actually, is almost the debate that Samson and Gregory have in the lead up to that gesture, rather than the gesture itself. They actually kind of seem pretty cowardly as these guys go. They're serving men, they hate the Montagues. They want to have a fight with them, but they don't want to actually start it. So they try and provoke it and they try and provoke it through this gesture. And the key thing about the thumb bite and, you know, what happens in the discussion of the thumb bite that follows is it's sense of deniability. There's that moment where Abraham says, do you bite your thumb at us? And they reply, oh, no, no, I just bite my thumb. I'm just biting my thumb. I'm not biting it at you. This is just something I'm doing. You can almost like pretend it's been misinterpreted. You're just sort of picking your teeth or chewing your nails. So it's kind of, it's deniability is a key part of its potency and its power. But I think what is really cool about the thumb bite is it's such an active bravado. I mean, that's what you can say about a lot of vulgar gestures, I guess, is that they're acts of bravado. But at the same time, they are just acts. The thing that I always think about gesture is that it isn't action itself. You're kind of gesturing towards an idea, but you're not fully committing to it. So I love the kind of the performativity of this. I think the scene brings up so many kind of interesting ideas about toxic masculinity, these moments of like bombast, braggadocio, like wanting to act the big man. And that's a great way of beginning this play with this real kind of action that spurns on the violence that uh, Romeo and Juliet is only going to continue with. The phrase making figs comes up in Shakespeare's plays, and this is known to be one of these vulgar gestures that you're talking Mm -hmm. about. But Miranda, what would this gesture have looked like for someone to do on stage? And why is it considered obscene? That's such a good question, because making figs is really a gesture like the thumb bite that many people don't have familiarity with. You know, they're sort of sometimes available around the world and other parts of the world today or in other kind of societies and other kind of patches of time. If we can go back in time travel, you're probably going to see far more figs being made or thumbs being bitten. Making a fig is when you put your thumb between the first and the second finger. It's sort of like you're inserting uh, the thumb between those two digits. I mean, the thumb is potentially considered to be a phallic symbol. So I guess the idea, the association of putting your thumb between the first and second finger is a sense of, you know, telling someone to, you know, go F themselves, I guess. I mean, the idea of figs and the association with kind of trying to humiliate, I suppose, 
comes back to the very first act of shame recorded in the Bible, the discovery of nakedness, being ashamed, and then covering the newly shameful parts of yourself with fig leaves. So there's a kind of association of, you know, vulgarity and nakedness there. Figs were also used by the Spanish in this period. They were said to use poisoned figs to bump off their enemies. So I suppose the connotation can also be something along the lines of drop dead. It's a gesture that we see a little bit more often than the thumb bite, actually. It's used in Dante's Inferno. The thief, Vanni Fucci, he um, makes figs with his hands. He, He actually aims them at God. There's a bit in the Inferno where he's in hell and uh, he throws up both hands and both their figs and roars, take that God, they're aimed at you. It's a gesture that kind of goes back pretty far. On a kind of more disgusting note, there's uh, the legend of Barbarossa, who in 1162 humiliated the defeated Milanese army by forcing the prisoners to pull figs out of the anus of a mule with their teeth. So I think that I know, I'm just (laughs) seeing the response there. Um, I'm usually prepared (laughs) for the answers that my guests give to these questions. And I have to say, I didn't see that one coming I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. (laughs) No, it's okay. I had no idea that association. Yeah, I mean, it it proves the point, though, that, you know, you don't need to know all of these associations for, you know, the meaning to kind of become clear. What I think is interesting about the way that gestures accumulate meaning is that it's almost a collage approach. You know, you know, there are kind of different things that, you know, different stories different associations that over time build up to this kind of overall picture of this is associated with something dodgy or dirty in some way. You don't have to know every single one of these stories, but if you know a couple of them, they're going to stick. That's going to mean that you have that association, that connotation of vulgarity in some way. So yeah, again, (laughs) apologies for shocking you, but a nice little bit of of history there uh, if you're interested in humiliation. It accurately brings the understanding I think is necessary behind that gesture. It's not just insulting, it's hugely insulting. And you see exactly why they would use the phrase and and the gesture as well. So no, no apologies needed. I just, <laughs> yeah. So we have hand gestures today that are, they're only obscene or insulting depending on what part of the world you're in. As an example, I think of the AOK symbol we have here in the US where you put your thumb and index finger together and your next three fingers are held up straight. Visually, it looks kind of like a turkey symbol, but that same gesture, if you use it in Brazil, you know, for us, it means, oh, everything's fine. But if you use it in Brazil, it's quite insulting. And it's a very nasty, obscene gesture. And it's the exact same hand symbol. Miranda, this comparison has me wondering about some of the gestures we see from Shakespeare's lifetime. Were visual hand symbols like biting your thumb or making figs uniquely English in their insulting nature? Or did other countries during the early modern period consider those same hand gestures to be obscene as well? This is such a good question. And it's a really important thing to note that gestures aren't universal. And really, the response I have to this is that I don't really think the thumb bite is especially English at all. I think the, you know, the fact that it you know appears in the first scene of a Shakespearean play might make it seem more English than it is. But it's only featured in two plays that survive from the period. There aren't many other references to it as a gesture. What's also curious is in Romeo and Juliet, the gesture literally has to be explained to the audience as being rude. They have to sort of explain, they say it will be a disgrace to them if they bear it. 
So why the need to explain it if it would be something that they're familiar with? And my argument, I think, is that maybe it's because it's more of a continental gesture. It's something that happens more on mainland Europe. And so that helps to create the Italian setting in the very first scene of the play. We're locating the beginning of the drama in a more exotic, a sort of a foreign climate. There's that stereotype, of course, that Italians are really gesticulatory. Um, So the idea of having a fight provoked by a hand gesture works really well. I'm reminded of, um, there's a, I think, a story by the historian Keith Thomas, who says, that he'd heard of an Italian who couldn't speak because it was too cold for him to take his hands out of his pockets. And he can't do one without the other. They have to go literally hand in hand. So the thumbbite seems to really be a marker of Italian rudeness rather than English, although it's made famous in English culture through an English play. But, you know, we have to remember its Italian location here. If we're thinking about the fig, I mean, it's known as the Spanish fig. It's treated as this Spanish gesture, but used in English culture. Obviously, in the sort of 1580s and 90s, the Spanish are the enemy. They want to gesticulate back at the Spanish using their own gesture. There's even actually um, a pamphlet published in the late 1500s called A Fig for the Spaniard that was sponsored by Queen Elizabeth's government. And in it, you can read and learn about the damnable deeds of the Spanish. And there's loads of racial profiling and how the Spanish are prone to thievery and violence and other dastardly things. So even though we're looking at these gestures from, you know, an English playwright, they're not uniquely English, far from it. In fact, I think what Shakespeare's doing is he's appropriating these gestures from other cultures because of, first of all, where he wants to set his plays, but also to kind of bring in this this idea, I suppose, this flavour of um, cultural unease um, in the face of this so-called barbarous other of, of the Spanish. So I think there's some really kind of interesting things going on there about the way that culture is sort of appropriated um, in lots of different ways, even through gesture. Miranda's book outlines spitting scenes from Richard III and Merchant of Venice. And obviously, Miranda, I think we can understand today how spitting on someone might be insulting since it's definitely gross. But for Shakespeare's (laughs) lifetime, what was the significance and association specifically with spitting at someone? I should say that maybe my book isn't as gross. It isn't all about gross things. There are a few gross things in it. I mean, what I think is useful to think about is germ theory isn't a thing until the 19th century. There isn't a sense of spit being icky because it contains stuff that spreads diseases, but it's still considered rude. It's still bad etiquette. The other thing that I always think about is, yeah, I suppose teeth hygiene back then. You know, we don't have, they didn't have toothpaste with fluoride in it or anything like that. So the spit itself would actually be grosser than it is now. In terms of its associations, if you're being spat at, it marks you out as unclean. You've revolted the person who spat at you. So the spittle sort of becomes a symbol of that disgust. There's also a kind of apotropaic function, the idea that spitting could ward off evil, it could avert witchcraft. I think Pliny said that spittle itself had medical benefits to increase the efficacy of medicine and charms, and you would use spittle for medical diagnoses like urine. One of the things about spittle is that obviously it 
breaks the boundaries of the body and the code of civility. If we want to think about what is generally thought of as obscene or grotesque, it's objects leaving the body, and spit is one of those things. I think in these two plays in particular, spitting is also a metaphor for the body politic. The body politic wants to purge characters like Richard and Shylock. Spitting becomes an embodied metaphor for what people want to do to Richard and Shylock, to expel them because they're seen as unwelcome figures. One of the other ways in which spitting is seen in the period is as an act of taming. So, for instance, you would spit at dogs to train them. There's a line in The Roaring Girl about spitting in the dog's mouth, which is really curious to us. That's not something that we still do today when we're trying to train our dogs. But Richard III is himself described as um, a dog at the end of the play. Um, I think they come on stage, Richmond says, the dog is dead. So there's very much a sense of, you know, this unruly figure needs to be tamed in some way. In terms of Merchant of Venice, I think that the spitting at Shylock foreshadows his eventual forced conversion to Christianity, which may sound like a bit of a leap, but I'll I'll try and explain. In the scene where we hear that Antonio has spat on Shylock, Act 1, Scene 3, we also have the line that the Hebrew will turn Christian. We need to remember that the best-known cultural incident of spitting in Europe at the time is Christ being shamed on the way to his crucifixion. There are loads of images, loads of references about him being spat upon by the Jews. So in The Merchant of Venice, This is being inverted, and the Christians are now spitting upon the Jews instead. The fact that Christian tradition associates water with transformation, baptism as a rite, water sort of being used as a gateway to spiritualism, it's this idea of baptism washing away your sins. So being spat on for Shylock is a sort of crude baptism that foreshadows what goes on to happen to him at the end of Act 4. He's allowed to live, but only provided that he converts from his Judaism. And some productions have, you know, done some interesting work with actually bringing the spitting onto the stage rather than just being a reported incident. I think I saw a production at the Royal Shakespeare Company when Patrick Stewart was playing Shylock. And as he turned his back for his final exit at the end of Act 4, I think it was Graciano spat upon him and the entire audience just completely gasped and had this audible intake of breath. And it was like really this final indignity, which I thought was really interesting. It was also interesting because it was Patrick Stewart. There was also a sense in the auditorium of people going, oh my God, I can't believe he just spat on Sir Patrick. <laughs> uh, <laughs> which which is also, it's, it's interesting to think about the way that, you know, spitting is an act that, you know, can't really be faked. When you're acting, you can do a lot of things in terms of pretending. But, you know, if you want to If you have to spit at someone on stage, you have to spit at them on stage. Um, And you're not just spitting at the character, you're spitting at an actual person. So the way in which people try and um, figure out the best way to do this, I think they just lean into it after a while. There was, um, I think, another production at the RSC, but with Jonathan Slinger as Richard III. And um, when Lady Anne spat at him, I think he just decided to gross her out even further by licking the spittle off his fingers, which is, oh, God, I've done it again. I'm so sorry. This is not the podcast that you had in mind. No, it's Um, okay. (laughs) You're getting my, my real responses here to this, but I'm not offended. I just think, wow, that would be... Yes, the the right way to grow someone out for sure. (laughs) During Shakespeare's lifetime, school was based 
very heavily on drama and physical bodily performance on stage specifically. So I wonder if there were any cultural gestures that boys would have actually been taught in school as a part of standard education. Mm, Yeah. Learning rhetoric was a major part of the grammar school education. So he would have been learning how to use gesture as part of a rhetorical skill. He's obviously not going to be learning about rude gestures in class, maybe after school uh, with his friends or seeing stuff in the street afterwards. Well, yes, but I mean like like making eye contact or holding your hands in, in front of your body when you're speaking and things like that. Yeah, absolutely. So there are set texts by people like Quintilian, his De Oratore and Cicero's De Officius, which taught him lessons about using speech deliberately, but also these kind of studied acts of gesture. Um, Cicero said that action is truly the body's speech. Demosthenes said that the most important elements of rhetoric were delivery, delivery, delivery. Um, In fact, Quintilian wrote that Demosthenes would practice speaking in front of a mirror so as to create the best effect, you know, using the right gestures, using the right posture, the right stance. So the idea of practicing in front of a mirror is kind of echoing Hamlet's advice to the players later on, you know, to hold a mirror up to nature, you know, create this sort of sense of ease and naturalism. You know, Cicero, who Shakespeare would have studied, you know, said that we must attempt nothing contrary to universal nature. He asks for a constancy and moderation of every word and action, which again (laughs) reminds us of the advice, you know, suit the action to the word, the word to the action, the idea of kind of creating this naturalism um, in performance, the sort of best version of yourself almost, which I think is an interesting thing to kind of consider. The sort of use of, of gesture to underline a point, to you know, place your hand on your heart at useful moments of sincerity. There are you know, loads of instances like this where you have these strategies of gesture being uh, deployed for rhetorical effect. It always amazes me to sort of look back at the grammar school education Shakespeare would have had because you know he would have left left school you know as a teenager sort of 16 or so but you know if you'd gone to a grammar school and had your education there and sort of left at 16 you'd have the kind of knowledge that you'd need a BA in classics for now it was Latin and Greek all day every day and it was literally beaten into you it always amuses me when people come up with the idea that Shakespeare didn't write the plays because he didn't go to uni- he didn't go to university. You know what he needed to know he could have learned at school through this very rigorous classical education, which you know teaches him so much about the idea of of action as well as composition. And there are so many kind of ways in which you you look at the the ways in which orators were studied, and you think well. Okay, yeah, they're really kind of bringing that into the idea of, uh, I suppose, acting in the period becoming more sort of developed and interesting and nuanced and um, personal and sort of more psychologically real. And all of that comes from, you know, this oratorical tradition. Now, these gestures are so very visual. And a lot of them, as you mentioned, are are built into the culture of society and not necessarily things that we have manuals written down for. Now, some of them are explained, as you mentioned in the text of Romeo and Juliet, the Mm -hmm. actors actually explain, hey, I'm making this hand gesture and here's what it means. But for the others that are just visual gestures, how do we know Mm -hmm. which ones were used? Where did we get the information on what the hand gestures were? 
what's interesting, I think, is, I mean, it often comes down to people talk to me about stage directions and they they sort of say, well, where are these gestures? How do you know that they're there? I mean, sometimes in the script we have a stage direction and sometimes we don't. But either way, the need for a gesture is often coded into the language of the script. There's a moment in Othello when I think Iago says, do not rise yet. Now, there hasn't been a stage direction that says Othello kneels, but clearly the language implies that he already is and that is already happening. So similarly, there's no stage direction for he bites his thumb. Abraham asks, do you bite your thumb of Samson? So Samson must have done it. So what you can do is sort of work backwards from what the lines of the text say and sort of insert stage directions as imperatives to action after the fact, because otherwise the script just won't make sense. We do have stage directions that are quite useful. For instance, the only other example of thumb biting in a surviving play from the period is preserved by a stage direction. It's in the anonymous play, Dick of Devonshire, and a character called Tiago comes off worse in a fight, and as he exits, the stage direction says, exits biting thumbs which I just think is lovely. So we we do have some stage directions, but we we do have moments where it clearly is just implied by what's happening um, within the script. Obviously, what this doesn't account for are all the gestures used on stage in the heat of the moment to accompany the words. The script doesn't record or account for every single piece of movement or posture. And so we can only recover so much. There are ways, I think, in which we can try and get a little bit closer to thinking about um, the ways in which uh, gesture and deportment kind of work in the period, uh, particularly if you want to, you know, look into the original practices movement by staging these plays in sort of archetypes or replica theatres, thinking about, you know, what those spaces shape your body into doing or wearing original practice costumes. How does that help you hold yourself differently? How does that lend meaning to the words? And the actions that are kind of being shaped by the fact that you're stitched in quite tightly often to, you know, a very unforgiving garment. So there are kind of lots of ways in which you can kind of try to recover. But obviously, the thing is about gestures is that they are ephemeral. You know, they're written on the air and then they disappear. When I started doing this research, I was I was very kind of <laughs> lost at sea for a while. But I think if you if you kind of if you kind of look closely, you, you can find it. And, and for the most part, it's it's there within the language of the script itself. One of the most famous scenes in Shakespeare's Macbeth is that of Lady Macbeth trying to wash away blood from her hands. And Miranda, honestly, I didn't think of this as a significant gesture from a historical context until your book pointed that out. So I'd like to ask you to explain for us, why is Lady Macbeth washing her hands incessantly? And why is that seen as a specific shaming gesture? I think the assumption is that, you know, she's been involved in murder and these would be the natural ravings of a woman plagued with guilt, but you mentioned it might be more. Yeah, I mean, I was struck by a phrase and wondered whether it related to a literal act. And I found out that I was right. And the phrase was the idea, um, <laughs> I wash my hands of this. You know, if you've heard that phrase, someone says, oh, I wash my hands of this. It's removing yourself from responsibility, isn't it? Because if the hand is a symbol of agency, washing it is like you're literally getting rid of something you've done. So the hand-washing gesture um, of you know, repeatedly washing your hands is referred to a really cool book from 1644 by John Bulwer called Chirologia and Chironomia. It's this kind of anthology 
really of of gestures which is is so so cool he has lots of images of them and he describes the hand washing as a show of innocence gesture to declare that you don't have a hand in any foul business and so it's the cleansing motion that denotes the cleanness of their actions <laughs> he he talks about it as a hieroglyph of innocence which i love but the washing of the hands thing it really comes back to the bible and the thing that was really surprising about my research and this is, isn't something that you've asked me about but how many of the associations of these gestures come back to biblical provenances you know the the longevity of these stories and the way in which they make their way not just into language but to gesture itself and our associations of those actions is something that really surprised me. But in the Bible, Pilate condemns Christ to be crucified and then he publicly washes his hands. He actually didn't want to condemn Christ to death, but there was a lot of pressure to convict him. And so afterwards, he went and he washed his hands publicly. This is a detail mentioned in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You know, it's clearly included for a reason. But there's another reference in, I think it's in Psalms, that says, I wash my hands of innocence. Of course, <laughs> the thing about all this is Lady Mac- Macbeth is guilty as hell. It's a gesture of apparent innocence, but That's sort of the point. She wants to appear innocent precisely because she isn't. It's a little bit of a different gesture to some of the other ones I look at in the book, because I suppose hand washing isn't itself a shaming gesture like the thumb bite. Instead, it's more of a gesture of shame. It reflects a person's internal shame and guilt, whereas something like the thumb bite would try to inflict shame on someone else. There's a different kind of emotion in the early modern period uh, that's referred to as fear sickness, which is sort of similar to paranoia. Alison Hobgood writes about this really well. So the idea is that sort of these repeated actions evoke ideas of paranoia, that sort of obsessive, did I do that already? I'm not sure. I'd better do it again. Um, And that's what we kind of see in that scene with Lady Macbeth, I think it's a really uncanny, a really unnerving scene. And the fact that she's kind of being watched over by a doctor and a serving woman watching these actions, she's terrified of revealing herself. But what she does is, in her sleep, reveal herself unwillingly. It's always a very difficult scene to watch, I think. It's, you know, similar to Ophelia's madness in Hamlet, I think. We don't even get to see, you know, what happens to Lady Macbeth. We have a report of what happens um, that she has committed suicide. So it's it really is a sort of a symbol of this sort of degeneration of this sense of of the mind not being able to let go of a particular action and playing it over and over and over again until that's the only thing that she can think about. One gesture question that I think our listeners ask a lot and that comes up probably every time a teacher presents Romeo and Juliet to students for the first time is when Juliet is talking to Romeo and says, for saints have hands that pilgrims hands do touch and palm to palm is holy palmer's kiss. Of course, I swoon over this entire exchange every time I see this play (laughs) performed, almost in spite of myself, because I've seen it enough times. I know it's coming. But for the 16th century, what is the significance of these lines? Why is the symbol of praying hands here considered romantic? Or was it even supposed to be romantic? Romantic when Shakespeare wrote it. Oh, I, lo- I love this moment and I, I love this play. I mean, the book to go to to learn more about this is by Farrah Karim Cooper. Her book, The Hand on the Shakespearean Stage, 
she talks about the scene and she talks about it not just in terms of love at first sight, but love at first touch, which I think is just lovely. Um, her focus on why this gesture happens is focused on tactility and intimacy. In terms of it being romantic or sexy, the palm in this period is one of the most intimate places of the body. She talks about how touching a woman's palm is far more erotic than we might imagine today. If you think Back to the idea of, you know, the belief in palm reading, the idea of the hand being where your secrets are written upon you. The hand is this marker of identity and reflects your inner thoughts, similar to the face in some ways. It's also a moister part of your body. It's warmer, again, that lends itself to kind of great intimacy. Farah also talks in her book about the religious connotations, um, how particular rituals involve the hands in acts of devotion. Hands can evoke spiritual acts and, you know, the laying on of hands, touch can transfer the divine onto the mortal. Um, she talks about the fact that kissing hands or lips is a relatively common practice, but what Farah observes is that palm-to-palm touching really only happens in courtly dances and isn't really mentioned in the books um, on decorum that we have from the period. So when Romeo and Juliet finally do kiss at the end of that sonnet, uh, she, she says that the, intimate, the threshold of intimacy has already been crossed through what the hands have done. So actually the hands kiss first, and that in itself is... <gasps> a big, exciting, uh, romantic moment. The kiss just kind of confirms that. They're just confirming what the hands have already done. So Farah does a great reading of this. It's a really fantastic book. It's She supervised my, my PhD, so um, she sort of started me off on this, on this odyssey of gesture. So um, I have a lot to thank her for. We'll be sure to link to her book in the show notes for today's episode. And I appreciate you clearing that up. I know we would love to learn more about gestures from Shakespeare's lifetime. And of course, reading Miranda's incredible book is perhaps the best way to do that. However, Miranda, even if your book does refer to a few places that we can explore in this area, I wonder if you would mind sharing with us some of your favorite books and resources, in addition to uh, Dr. Kareem Cooper's book, that we can use to learn more about gestures from Shakespeare's lifetime. Of course. Well, Farris book is obviously a great place to start. Um, I also really enjoy Darren Tunstall's Shakespeare and Gesture in Practice. That's a really good read. I think that's published by Rutledge. If you want to go to something from the period, John Bull was Chirologia and Chironomia that I mentioned earlier, the, the treaties from 1644. Bulwer is almost approaching gesture as a kind of scientific inquiry, but really it's more of a cultural study. It's a collection of gestures and their histories and their associations. The images in it are really interesting. And actually Bulwer's interest in gesture meant that later he wrote about communicating with the deaf and the dumb. He was really interested in sign language. So moving on from, you know, gesture as representative in something that could like fully communicate um, as a language in its own right. In terms of my book's approach to the emotion of shame and humiliation, Ewan Fernie's Shame in Shakespeare is a really important book that sparked an interest in shame and what it means for me. I was looking at it the other day and I suddenly realised it was published 20 years ago, which just seems absolutely astonishing because it was relatively recent when I started my PhD, but such is the passage of time. 
These are excellent resources for sure. And we will link to these in the show notes for today's episode. So make sure you stop by there after the show to find that and all the good stuff we pack in the show notes here at That Shakespeare Life. Now, Miranda, we ask everyone this next question here at That Shakespeare Life, and that's what's the one book you would take with you on a deserted island? My friends in England tell me I'm supposed to allow you the complete works of Shakespeare and a copy of the Bible. So your choice would be in addition to those. This is the best question ever. Um, huge fan of Desert Island Discs. Total dream to <laughs> to be on there one day. You know what? I'm, you'd probably expect me to pick something early modern, um, but I'm going to go in the completely opposite direction and, and pick Evelyn Waugh, Decline and Fall, which was the first novel that he wrote. It's really short, really, really short novel, but I figured if I ever complete works of Shakespeare and a Bible, something a bit pithier and compact might be a bonus. It's just such a great, comic novel the economy of the writing is superb it's that really it's that thing that you often see in comedy where really funny stuff seems really kind of simple to create because the prose has such a, a flow and an ease to it and the characterizations that he draws seem so familiar to us but it's the work of an absolute master it really is absolutely fantastic he can just there's no extraneous material in this novel whatsoever. It's a great example of brevity really being the soul of which he's just able to create these character sketches out of just, you know, a couple of really well-chosen details. And you know exactly who these people are and the kind of English institutions that he's sending up. So I would choose Evelyn War, Decline and Fall. I think you would be making a great choice with that selection for your desert island, for sure. So what's next for you? What are you working on now that you're excited about? Oh, well, um, my work on gestures may be more interested in embodiment. So um, I'm continuing the research in my new projects. At the moment, I'm particularly interested in casting practices. So both in Shakespeare's day and today, I'm really, I guess, asking what does the sight of the actor's body mean and what does that communicate to the audience? 400 years ago, Shakespeare and his other contemporary dramatists you know, were often, you know, writing for particular people within their company, you know, working with particular kind of stock character roles. But I'm interested as to how that works today as well, when ghosts of previous roles will haunt the actor on stage. You know, if you look at, say, David Tennant being cast as Hamlet or Benedict Cumberbatch being cast as Hamlet, how do their roles as the Doctor or as Sherlock get projected onto the performances that they end up producing in a Shakespearean production. So, you know, I I think that the next book I write is going to be about casting in Shakespeare because I love the idea of the actor as a blank canvas, but I I just don't think it's true. I think audiences are always going to be projecting these cultural memories onto these actors. And I think obviously any book about casting would be looking into identities of race, of gender, and the way that these kind of expectations are being played on in modern productions. Um, And so to think more about access, inclusivity, and agency is something that I'm I'm really keen to dip into. I'm also working on an edited collection of essays at the moment called The Idea of the Shakespearean Actor, which continues this kind of thinking. This is with uh, my friends and colleagues, Sally Bond and Ema McHugh. It's really a collection that asks what is a Shakespearean actor and who's traditionally been given that moniker who is allowed to be one and so I hope that it's a book that will question ideas about representation about canon formation about agency and all of these things that are sort of tied in with our kind of notion of what Shakespeare represents. 
I think those are excellent points of research. There's a new show. I think yesterday I saw a trailer on TV for a new show coming out starring Jeremy Renner. And I watched it and I my actual comment to my husband was, I know he's playing someone else here, but all I see is Hawkeye. <laughs> and so I think it's I think it's really neat to bring that that perspective into plays and performance and, and ask the question, you know, how did we change what happened by who we put there. So we'll look forward to seeing all the new research coming from Miranda Faye Thomas. And we thank you so much for spending part of your time here with us today to take us into the history of body language and gesture. This has been a really fun conversation and I thank you for being here. Thank you, Cassidy. Make sure you stop by the show notes for today's episode to find images, portraits, and other supporting visual material for today's episode, along with links to Miranda's work and some snazzy Shakespeare extras just for you. Find all these things at castycash.com slash episode 196. That's castycash.com slash EP196. If you like the history you learn about here on the show and want to go even deeper into the life of William Shakespeare, then consider becoming a member of That Shakespeare Life. Our membership area is designed for educators and history enthusiasts who really want to step inside turn of the 17th century England with games, recipes, and crafts that are not only mentioned in Shakespeare's plays, but coordinate with specific episodes of the podcast as well. So they come together like little lesson plans or history activity bundles you can use to explore the life of William Shakespeare. You can collect these activities one at a time or become a member to get an all-access pass to our entire collection of activities, courses, and more, plus exclusive bonuses only available to members. Sign up today at CassidyCash.com slash member. That's CassidyCash.com slash member. That's it for this week. Thank you for listening. I'm Cassidy Cash, and I hope you learn something new about the Bard. I'll see you next week. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to That Shakespeare Life. As always, the best conversations happen after the episode over at CassidyCash.com. Become a part of a vibrant Shakespeare conversation by adding your voice over at the website. Until next time, remember, when you want to know William Shakespeare, you have to go behind the curtain and into That Shakespeare Life.